Made to Lead podcast, a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of African descent who are leading in their own way. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba, and on each episode, I interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements, challenges, dreams, and aspirations, and the lessons they've learned along the way. These candid conversations are meant to showcase their superb talents and leadership philosophies with the hope that inspires you because you were also made to lead. If you're listening for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. Also visit our website, madetolead.co, for more information about each episode. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of Made to Lead. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba. And today on the show, I'm pleased to have Fenton with us. He is a co-founder and COO of Faculty, uh, which is a venture-backed, uh, venture capital-backed modern grooming company based out of San Francisco. Uh, and before he got into that entrepreneurship journey, he was a global management consultant, um, and he focused on business strategy and innovation, uh, including uh, managing strategy for some large Canadian restaurant chains, working closely with founders and CEOs uh, to push boundaries uh, in their industry. Uh, Fenton also currently sits on the board of the largest library system in the world, where he's responsible for chairing the strategic planning committee and developing the library's five-year strategy. And it, you know, that that makes him the one of the youngest appointed directors uh, to any of the public boards in the city of Toronto. Um, and he's also a proud Western University graduate. He's got a, a, an honors BA uh, from Ivy uh, Business School, and he loves the Raptors, just like a lot of us here in, in Toronto. Uh, so Fenton, welcome to the show. Thanks for, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aziz. It's always a pleasure. Awesome. So, so you know, we're going to start things a little bit differently, and, and I just want to go right into your, your entrepreneurship journey first, and then we'll, we'll yeah, kind of totally. work towards that. Um, so how did you how did you come up uh, end up starting faculty and, and and probably just describe to our listeners what faculty is? Yeah, totally. That's a really good question. So so faculty is a modern grooming company. Um, we are based out of San Francisco and we're taking on this new trend in the world that we're calling the new masculinity or third wave masculinity. Um, the same way the feminism evolved in three waves, we're seeing this tipping point in history where the newest trend in what it means to be a man, what it means to identify as a man, is designed around what you believe masculinity should be about. So no longer is there this stereotype around, well, to be a man, you have to be the breadwinner and the sole provider and embody this idea of machismo. There's this whole other paradigm where however you choose to find masculinity, whatever that means to you, we as a company want to help you enable that um, through this new modern grooming kit. And, you know, to take away all the marketing, for the most part, it's cosmetics. And, you know, cosmetics as a whole isn't something that's used by men in general, at least men today. But you start to look at some of the numbers and you realize that there's, there's an incredible market here that's got a massive social cause behind it. Um, I think millennials are, are a bit has-been. Um, and the world is moving towards Gen Z. And Gen Z men in particular are not concerned with this concept of gendered consumption. They just want to consume goods that have a sophisticated cause behind it. Um, and when you take that element and you triangulate it with the fact that makeup, which is this you know half a trillion dollar market, 
the, the, the area that's growing the fastest at 20% every single year compounded um, is men's cosmetics. And when, you, and when you add that to the 300 plus men that we've spoken to, who if a brand existed that fit their needs and their aesthetic and their value proposition, they, they would buy from it. You start to realize that there's this whole new element. And like, you know, even when you think about fashion and the world of, you know, ASAP Rocky and Timothy Chalamet and Youngblood and all these really great idols in high fashion um, or in music that are starting to wear cosmetics, you start to realize that there's a bit of a, a market here. So, you know, I, I owe I owe most of the inspiration to my co-founder at the time, um, Umar, who, who I work with every single day. And the story behind it is, you know, he he was in a drugstore with his girlfriend, having the same idea, the same reflection, where he wanted to wear some of these products, whether it was a concealer or a nail polish or or some BB cream, you know, call it what you will. Um, but there was no brand that aligned with it. And in my camp. Um, I've always been somebody who didn't believe that you could really gender cotton. Like mm-hmm. how could you look at clothing and say that, well, this is for women and this is for men. And this idea of experimentation and wanting to wear things that were completely outside the realm of normal was just so natural to me. And we ended up meeting at uh, an event that I was holding um, at, at work where we were looking for new consultants to join the practice at a junior level. And we started just bantering about, music world and hip hop and Kanye West. And we started to realize that we had this same appreciation for this new wave masculine and about how the world is moving towards this new, this new way of thinking. Right. And I, I had, I had gone on from there. He, he was like, you know, I want to come and work for the firm that you guys are, you're working for. And it seems like I need to get some relevant skills before I even jump to make this. And I was like, don't do that go and build this and I'm going to support you as best as I can. And, you know, though I was an unofficial co-founder at the time, Umar likes to say that I've been a co-founder for, for as long as he has. Nice. I, I was in the, I was in the role of an advisor, um, but advisor turned executor. So I, you know, it was, Hey, take a look at this deck. Let's go through this marketing plan. Let's, let's figure out how to get stuff done uh, to, you know, let's get work so that we can go and pitch to some investors uh, let's let's do our best to to garner some support from different communities in New York and, and Los Angeles and San Francisco. Let's actually try to build this out. And I, I joined full time with him um, seven months ago to you know build this thing that we're having such a, a great time with. And I don't think I I don't think I'd be doing anything else right now. That's amazing. To be honest, that's amazing. And, and so you guys you guys have raised capital uh, in a very yeah. short period of time. Uh, you know, somewhere, uh, you know, over, over half a million dollars in, in, in venture funding. How did that come about? How did you guys, you know, first of all, source uh, or pitch this to VCs um, and, yeah. and ultimately sell it to, to a couple of folks uh, that decided to put money in this, in this in, uh, venture? Yeah, totally. I think, um, and the interesting thing about that disease is, I think everybody's got their crazy story on how they were able to raise their, their first round of funding. And, Ours was a pre-seed round. The money that we got was used to build up the brand and to and to sort of get this thing off the ground. And I remember I remember sitting in a room with Umar and we would just start cold calling. 
and cold emailing as as many investors as we as we thought. And we started in Toronto because we wanted to keep everything local to Canada. I mean, we're both Canadian boys. He's from London. I'm from Toronto. We want to we want to keep things as um, as local as possible. And we were looking up dragons. We were looking up you know anybody with a, even a slight desire to to do something in the world of direct consumer branding and, and products. Um, so it was a lot of that. It was a lot of you know, do does your friends, friends, dogs, sitter, moms, uncles, aunts, best friends, cats, you know, owner, do do they know <laughs> somebody? And and then right. trying to jump into these third, so these third, fourth, and even fifth network rings to try and bring that in. And you know, it was it was sort of successful. Um, we ended up uh, getting a you know a lot of conversations with people. But as I'm sure anybody who was raising capital knows. There's a lot of no's. Yeah. yeah. Um, tons of no's. Um, you know, and I, I think I think that's someone told me that the difference between a good salesman and a a great salesman is that a great salesman gets told no way more often. Right? Which which then if you like actually think about that, you realize that the quantity needs to be so high if you're gonna try and and, and actually convert. Right. Um and, and we had some interesting conversations. We uh you know, we we almost went um, we almost went the full distance with a very well known um, dragon in the space, um, Joe Mimran, um, when we were when we were originally raising our our, our pre seed round, but that didn't end up working. And you know, uh, God bless Joel, he's uh, he's he's great and he's totally into the vision, but it didn't work out for us. So we decided that you know maybe Canada isn't the right place for us. Hmm. Maybe we need to go and and, and try to source some capital stateside. Um, and, you know, using that same process, I think, I think Umar and myself, we got really lucky and Umar got connected to, um, Bolt IO, which is, um, a, a VC out in San Francisco. Um, and, you know, three days before Umar graduated, he was able to go and, and, and get that check, which was great. And we were able to also source some, um, angel investors to, nice. to help push that charge. So being able to, you know, put that deck together and to go through hundreds and, and I kitchen you know, hundreds of iterations of the same presentation, taking feedback from every single person that we came in contact with, every single investor who told us no. Um, and finally we were we were successful was uh was great. That's phenomenal. That that's that's a really, really good story. And you know, I feel like a lot of these things, you know, when these things happen, it's a culmination of a of a series of events. Right. Um, series of things that have come before this particular um, uh, occasion. And so so let's talk about that in, in terms of your life. Right. Starting yeah, totally. from the beginning, you know, what was growing up like for you? Um, huh. You know, what, what was your family like um, and, and how did you end up uh, one in the career space that that you were in prior to yeah. to, to founding faculty? Um, uh, and yeah, just just talk to us about that. I I grew up in a in a very interesting household. I like to I like to joke uh, about this to my mom and dad. But the two things that kept my household going, um, the big pillars of what my parents deemed success was a good mind and a good diet. Um, mm-hmm. Having the best education you possibly could get, and and my father and mother being crazy proponents of that. Like my 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 dad was the kind of guy to go to every parent teacher council meeting and. He, he would always be on the front lines of, of, you know, my, my education journey. 
and the diet part was just making sure we had the best food we possibly could. And I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to have a mother who's a terrific cook and the daughter of a, of a uh, chef based in South America, which I think is amazing. Um, yeah. So education was very important and food was very important. And, and, you know, uh, when you're living in a biracial household um, where, you know, your, your mom is Afro and your, your dad is Indian, you've got this great mix of, of, of amazing culture, but also you, you tend to get into this weird identity crisis where, where you're not too sure where you want to sit on the paradigm right. and, and you're not too sure where you, where you are personally, but interesting journey uh, to say the least. My, um, my parents are super supportive and I think that's part of the reason why I am who I am today. Honestly, like, like if, if I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you about this and you know, if, if I didn't do justice to my mom, she might come and get me. So it, uh, it, it's, it's, it's great. But I think, you know, that's sort of the household and, you know, grew up in a very uh, religious household. My, my parents are Anglican. Um, so church was also a big, a big part of our, our upbringing and spirituality was something that we were taught to, to embody, but also to constantly question um, because you wanted to have your own ideas and beliefs about this, this massive universe and this thing that we call life. So having, I think, all those three things was really crucial to, to where I was. And like, man, my, my parents would have kind of, and just to show you the extent of, of this and how all this is so important, like my parents were the kind of people to fake their address so <laughs> I could go to a better public school. Right. Okay. Because they were really focused know, on the no, education piece. Because they, they were really focused. Yeah, they were really focused on that because... I think their mentality was, look, you know, we, we left our homes and we came to Canada for the sole purpose of giving our future children a better life. And if we didn't equip them as best as we could to accomplish that, then we would have done bad as parents and as guardians. Right. So they would, they would pull every single trick out of the book, right? And as, as immigrants, you don't have the benefit of having the same network that you know, your peers may have if you grew up here or you were educated here or yeah. you were university educated. It's just not the same, right? So so how do you in your in your clever way try to even the playing field for for your offspring so that when they go out into the world, which is a chaotic one, that they're still doing the best they possibly can statistically. Feel me? Yeah. No, that I, I completely agree with that. And and a lot of people uh, as you mentioned, a lot of immigrants, uh, you know, first generation uh, uh, Canadians or diasporans, you know, regardless of the country that you're in, experience this. And and you got to find a way to make sure that you're getting the best out of the environment that you're in, um, considering that you're probably starting behind uh, in some kind of way. Um, so how did how did how did you end up in in strategy? You know, you, you went to you know, you ended up going to, to Ivy Business School and, and yeah. for those that, that don't know, Ivy is literally one of the Ivy League schools uh, in, in Canada. Um, so you ended up, you know, you, you focused on strategy and finance. And then, you know, how did you end up in, in, you know, in your first role? What was that? What was that that like getting your first yeah, totally. role? So you, you, made, you made an interesting point saying that Ivy was one of the Ivy League schools in Canada. So that's something that tricked me, too. It's not, <laughs> a, it's not, it's not actually the case, but, but uh, Ivy's namesake is, is re- Ivy, who was a, was a big investor, but no worries. A lot of a lot of a lot of parents think that too. But Ivy, Ivy is they 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 tout they 
they toot themselves as the best business school in Canada. And, right. you know, I'm going to be biased and say that they are, and, and we do compete very well against um, our Ivy league competitors in in uh, the U S. So I'm, I'm proud to continue that moniker. Um, but uh, honestly, I don't know. I, I think it was a, here, here's, here's a one down. Here's a one down after high school, high school was on a diverge of being completed. And I haven't, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Like, I'll be honest. And my mom still complains to me about this day. She's like, you're a flight risk. You don't know what you want to do with your life. You don't know. <laughs> you can't just settle. You can't be in one industry. Like one day you're in furniture. The other day you're in food. The other day is, you know, talking my ear. Um, but I, I wasn't really too sure what I wanted to do. So the conservative in me said, okay, I want to get a decent degree. That's going to give me a high earning potential and a good network because that's what I value. So business schools seemed to make the most sense. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't smart enough for engineering. I wasn't uh, smart enough to go to med school, but I knew that business, that seemed like something I was interested in. And I was, I was toying between um, Queens, Schulich and Rotman at the time. And because I didn't know Ivy even existed until I went to a career fair and, and I saw the logos and I was like, okay, this, this looks really interesting. And then started to add Ivy to the mix. And I had a really supportive guidance counselor who I would go into the office with every single day of my life, just, you know, debating internally as he listened to my monologue on which schools would be the best. Um, and then he was, he was nice enough to reach out to some people who had graduated from Ivy and graduated from Queens. Um, so I can get some like true, what we, what we call it in the innovation space is true, um, you know, human-centered design research um, and hear from people what their experiences were like. And I still wasn't convinced, so I flipped the coin. Just by chance. And just by chance. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to flip this coin and, and see where it lands. And Ivy, Ivy is where it, was where it landed. So nice. I was like, all right, going to pick up and go and go to Western University and try to do the Ivy thing. And then Ivy is an interesting program because you get a preconditional acceptance, right? So mm-hmm. they'll hold a spot for you only if you can prove that you can be a leader in your extracurriculars and that you can maintain an 80 overall average and that you can get a certain grade in, in one of their prerequisite classes. So the work wasn't over. Um, the work actually just began, but that's sort of how I stumbled on, on, on Ivy and, I, I guess I realized that throughout the experience, Ivy does a way of funneling you into mm. four different streams. You know, you either leave school as as an accountant, as as a banker, as a consultant, uh, or as a marketer. And at the time, none of those seemed attractive to me mm. at all. But what I liked was being entrepreneurial. What I really enjoyed was working intimately with leadership and being able to like do crazy things because I was just so bored all the time. So I ended up interning for, for Freshie um, after my third year. Freshie was, a, you know, at the time, one of the fastest growing restaurant chains based in Canada. And I had the esteemed pleasure of interning for the CEO directly on a special project. Nice. And I really, I really enjoyed working on these new crazy initiatives. Um, and when I graduated, I went back to work for Freshie full time um, in a similar capacity. And I guess my skill set grew. I started to understand the company more and I was started to become more interested in, in, in strategy. And part of my thinking too, I, I just read a book at that time um, by Clayton Christensen, who, you know, was a prolific strategic thinker on how you measure your life. 
And one of the really important things I got out of that is, you know, when people are planning their careers, some plan to climb a ladder, right? Start out in a junior position, work your way to middle management, work your way to upper management. You know, one day you're the CEO of a company. Other people plan based on scenarios. You know, in order for me to be the leader that I want to be today, I'm going to have to learn how to do certain things and have experiences in certain things so that I can take that learning and contribute it to my present day. So I knew that, you know, eventually I wanted to be a leader in some form of corporation and I would need to know what it's like to be entrepreneurial. I would need to know what it's like to work for leadership. I would need to know what it's like to work for a fast growing company in the event that I want to start one of my own. And my, my role changed at Freshie from doing business development to, you know, doing a bunch of Excel work and, and working on strategic projects and sort of playing this internal consulting role to different departments. And, you know, my last role there was effectively walking our leadership team, uh, the C-suite through, um, you know, monthly numbers and different analyses and working together on how we can drive change and actually get to the KPI that we're trying to, to uh, maximize on. So I realized that at that point that I had got all the learning that I think I could have gotten out of this experience. And the next step for me was, well, I wanted to develop a critical thinking skill set. I wanted to get some hard skills on, you know, how to build good presentations. I wanted to refine my skill set in Excel so that I can do really good analyses. And I thought, well, I don't really want to do banking because my life would suck. Uh, you know, no offense to bankers <laughs> listening, but you guys yeah. have it tough and hey, I'm, I'm thankful I, I don't. I am one of those. So yeah. Oh, well, well, there it. you go. Yeah. Well, there you go. Right. And I felt, I felt, you know what? Consulting seems like a really, a, a really good place where I could, I could get that. I can also experience, um, you know, the toolkit that I want. So, you know, after Freshie, I decided to jump into big consulting at, at one of the big four firms um, monitor Deloitte, who some people may be familiar with. And yeah. in particular, I got to do the majority of my projects within Doblin, which is their innovation consultancy. Oh, nice. Um, and I, yeah, which is, which is really cool. Uh, and I, I was dubbed their numbers guy. So whenever, whenever Doblin designers and, um, um, you know, ethnographers would put together these crazy ideas, I was always the guy that said, all right, so we're going to put cows on the moon, but here's how much it's going to cost. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's what your ROI is going to be. Here's here's how we make sure that this virtually works in a spreadsheet. Right. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> so you're the numbers it's, it's guy fun. behind the crazy ideas, if you will. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, Deloitte, Deloitte liked to look at, uh, Deloitte loves to look at Doblin as this, um, this crazy idea consulting shop that mm. comes up with new innovations and new ideas. And, you know, little do they know there's, there's somebody behind the scene who's trying to make this tangible for, for leaders who Amazing. may want something on paper as a number. Um, so I, I found my way to strategy one, because I knew it was the next step of my journey on, on growing my leadership skills um, in particular in the capacity as a critical thinker. But I also joined it because I wanted to solve problems. I, I wanted to be on the forefront of change. Um, I wanted to be in a place where the people, the colleagues that I had, I could learn from. Right. Um, and there's no better place than, you know, one of these massive big shops that just completely bring in the best talent that you can find. 
guessing all of that, you know, ultimately has led you to this point in terms of being an entrepreneur, a co-founder of a firm. But in between that, um, and, and let's delve into that leadership piece. Um, you know, you found your way onto the board of, of the Toronto Public Library as probably one of the youngest board members uh, they've had. How did, how did, how did that happen? <laughs> oh, that's a, yeah, that's a good one. Um, so look, I, let's, you know, you know, the story I think even begins, you know, before the board. Um, so I was, so I was telling you Aziz that my mom and dad were, were big proponents of education. Um, and my first experience, like as a child that I can remember was going to the library. Okay. My mom used to enroll me in TD summer camp which was at the public library. And every single time you read a book, you got a sticker, which your sticker went into your magazine. And then if you got all the stickers, it added together into this massive picture. And it was a massive party. I was, I was enrolled in that. And I don't know if she was bored or I was too much to handle. Um, but I was, I was enrolled in that, you know, every single year until I was too old to be in the program. So my, my affinity for the Downsview Library at the corner of Keelan Wilson in Toronto that's sort of where I got my first take at it. And in, um, in, in high school and university, I ended up working for a bookstore. So there's a, there's the Silver City um, in um, Yorkdale Mall up in Toronto. And right next to it is Indigo, yeah. which which I'm sure everybody knows Indigo is. They're a massive bookstore. And that's, that was actually one of my first jobs, um, you know, before, before doing the whole freshie consulting thing. So... Um, when I was at uh, when I was at Indigo, my job was to sell kids' books, and then my bosses thought it was too easy, so they put me in the philosophy and politics section, um, which was no which is also pretty good too because I, I have an affinity for that stuff. Yeah. Um, so so you know, fast forward a little bit, and there was an opportunity for me to apply uh, to be a director on their board, and I don't think a lot of people know this, but. The city of Toronto has a website with all the public appointments. So if you wanted to, you can go and apply for every available public appointment. Hmm. Right. And people don't know this. People yeah. don't know that this stuff is publicly available. Right. Hmm. So Aziz, right now, if you really wanted to, you can go to Toronto public appointments. And if you wanted to get on CreateTO's board, you probably could because there's likely a slot. Amazing. So, so make sure you do your homework after. Yeah, I, I'll check um, this out for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I threw my I threw my hat into the ring and was like, all right, well, I've got an affinity for the library. And I went through several rounds of interviews with counselors and, you know, lucky enough to get appointed to the board. Um, I think I think the more the more interesting thing is they let uh, they let this young kid run the strategy committee, which um <laughs> Which, which actually happened at random. And, and I'll be completely honest with you. I was, I was in the right place at the right time for that. Um, because, you know, God, God, God bless the board. They, they are such smart, driven, and talented people. And I learn from them almost every single day. Um, and when we were holding the elections for the chair for the strategic planning committee, um, Mid-election, I, I so I was late for the meeting, and I, I like bursted in um, at the same time that they were asking for nominations. And I was walking to my seat, and I was like, "Sure, why not? I'll do it." 
and, and you, you I, probably my name had got no put idea. On the you probably had no idea what you had signed up for at the beginning. I had I had no idea what I was <laughs> signing up for, but they were for nominations, and I just I just walked in and I put my hand up, and then nobody chose to to run against me. Nice. That, you know, that, that, that's a superb lesson. And, and, you know, a lot of the times in, in certain situations, we miss opportunities just because we don't even raise our hands, you know, uh, as in, you know, yeah, the opportunity is there. Someone tells you about it and then you don't put up your hand to, 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 you know, to get in the ring. Uh, yeah. You know, your, your version is an extreme where it's like, I don't even know if anything was happening and I just raised my hand up. Yeah, um, totally. and, and, and I find that that's a challenge, particularly for, for a lot of, uh, you know, black individuals and people of color, right? You know, we, we've got, we've got this upbringing where, um, you know, we, we put our heads down, we work and hopefully someone chooses us versus mm-hmm. us going out and seeking an opportunity. So, so this, I find this really fascinating, uh, especially yeah, in, yeah. in a space like this, where, as you mentioned, right, it's available for everyone, you know, uh, you just happen to have searched found something and got into the right, right space. So yeah, kudos to you for that. Thank you. Thank you. And you know, you raise a good point. I think, I I think the problem and you know, it's, it is, I think it is something that a lot of black folks face. Um, And I mean, I'm sure we're going to get into this a bit later around, you know, what what we can do better as, as black individuals to help uplift others, but also at the same time, like ensure this opportunity, but people, I think people are too scared. Yeah, you know, and my 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 parents have always been the type to say, "Look, if you think you can maybe do it, even one percent, you should just do it. You yeah. should just try something." Um, and that, and I think that open space is what a lot of black students don't get. It's the permission and the liberalism to go out and say, "Guess what? There's something that you could potentially get. Even if you fail, it's going to be okay." Right. Right. In terms of challenges that you faced, right? L- let's talk about those. You know, wh- what are some of the challenges that you faced, uh, both in your corporate uh, journey, as well as in this entrepreneurship uh, stint now that you're in uh, as a co-founder? Yeah, totally. Um, a lot. Like, don't don't let anybody tell you that these experiences are are are, are completely wholesome and smooth. Um, so. You know, I'm, I'm going to start earlier, if that's okay, actually. Sure. So it's, I had a really good time at Western. I, I made some great friends. I, I partied a ton. I, uh, I went out a lot. I was always the guy on, on the dance floor in the club with, with, a, with, a, with a, basically a towel with him because I sweat so much. So, so I had fun. <laughs> and I um, you know, went to a good business school. But the one thing that I, I constantly realized every time I was at a, at a competition or any time I was with my classmates or, or any time I was out was that there were no other black people around me. Mm. Okay. So, so to give you some statistics, I think in my year for my program, which is the HBA program, um, there were about 600 students and four of us were, were Afrocentric POCs. Wow. Wow. Like four and a half at best, if, if you include, you know, Eddie Murphy. Um, <laughs> so, it, yeah, not, not even 1%. Okay. And, and this is something that I think has continued to um, trend with me as I got into my, my, my corporate life. I, I was the only person at the table or I was the only person in the room that looked like me. Hmm. 
though, the relatability aspect and, and facing the uphill battle of what comes with being somebody who has a darker skin tone, there was sort of no real mentorship around it. And in, in those situations, it's tough because, you know, it, there, there were just so many instances I know, especially at, um, at Deloitte, where, you know, some of the feedback that I got, was, it, was, it was interesting. It was a bit of a dichotomy. It'd be like, Fenton, you're, you're a fantastic consultant. You're great at what you do. Everybody loves you, but you know you can be a bit too aggressive. Okay, is is that am I actually that aggressive, or or is my personality too loud, right? Or or you know getting feedback from 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 partners who would be like, you know, maybe if you just smiled a bit more, it might might not help. Like <laughs> the number of times I can count these instances on my on my on my hands, I wouldn't have enough hands for it. Um, and you know, I, there was a point where I sat down and I almost had a, a breakdown at the firm because I was like, is this my personality? Is my personality too aggressive or are people looking at me in, in a different lens? Right. And I remember one, we had, you know, we, we, we had a mentor at the firm who, you know, wasn't necessarily working with us full time. Um, and, and, and she was great. And, you know, she was like, well, Fenton, she, and she asked me the same thing is, you know, is, is there some unconscious biases or there's some unconscious microaggressions that are happening in the workplace that are making you feel this way? And look, man, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I'm, I've never been one to be like, this is happening to me because I'm black. Right. I've always tried to avoid this as much as I humanly can. And I don't know why it just wasn't something that I ever did, but it was, it was hard to ignore like a very textbook signs and, and, and that's when I sort of realized that, okay, you know, maybe the firm might not be as forgiving as I thought it was. Right. So how do you, how do you adjust and how do you adapt from that? And I think there was a bit of a learning curve for me. Um, one of the things I tried to, to do, one of my, one of my, one of my colleagues, the firm, they, they mentioned this phrase called, you have to like assume that between you and someone else, there's water and water distorts things. So under that assumption, how do you adjust whether you say things so that it doesn't tick someone off or, or it doesn't upset somebody? Um, and, you know, you really are with these pieces of advice accommodating for the environment. And, and then I, I realized that, hold on, maybe this is not the right way to do it. Maybe I shouldn't be accommodating for my environment. And, and I asked myself, you know, how might I be myself at work and still do a good job so that I'm hitting all my KPIs and how might I use my personality or what some people might look at me as you know, my blackness? Mm. How do I use that to help up, uplift others? And, and that's completely you know, flipped the switch for me, um, having that mindset and going into work being like, how can I use my unique personality? Because, because at Monitor, within Monitor, there was you know, maybe, maybe 150 consultants across, across the country, and two of us were black right so so how do, so how do i use my my uniqueness to to make the environment around me better and right. that, and that seemed to have worked out for me because I, I did get promoted so that's so something worked clearly clearly something worked yeah. yeah i don't know i don't know if it was that but it was something and i guess you know off of that did you you know have you experienced similar things as an entrepreneur now um especially during the capital raise uh, process, yeah. you know, uh, where, yeah. you know, I, I, we know the statistics in terms of 
the number of black co-founders or people of color that totally that get funding from venture capitalists. So, you know, what, what was what were the challenges there for you um, yeah. in, in, in getting some venture funding for for your startup? Totally. It's um, so. So as you mentioned, those statistics, right, it's one to two percent of capital goes to black founders, um, which is grossly low. And I think Silicon Valley can do a better job um, at uh, bumping those numbers up. And I think in the wake of Black Lives Matter and the wake of POCs um, trying to do better and trying to work with all types of people to make this experience better for all, I think we're going to see some change, which I'm, which I'm happy about. Um, but when you're raising money and you do not look like the typical profile of a founder, it becomes very difficult. And the issue is that it's not something that these VCs know. It's not something that they're conscious of. And, you know, you want to give forgiveness because, they, you know, they don't know better, but they should, right? And what do I mean by that? The same way that when I'm looking to hire somebody, right, or if I choose to hire somebody, I'm looking for a very particular background. You know, if I'm looking for somebody in marketing, I want them to have a marketing background. I want them to have gone to a good school if they went to you know, Miami ad school, that'd be amazing. If they've worked at SDLR before, that would be terrific. So I'm, I'm building a profile. There's this unconscious bias when VCs build a profile that they're looking for a Stanford graduate who is in his, mm-hmm. his mm-hmm. early 20s, who is white, who comes from a middle to upper class background, right? So when you're now pitching this idea as, you know, not any of those, yeah. <laughs> it, um, it, it, it becomes very difficult to, to relate and to, to find that common ground. Um, and you have to work 30, sometimes a hundred percent harder because of that. And, and I've spoken to, you know, my colleagues who are at professional service firms or even entrepreneurs who are in the same sort of playing field. And, you know, they attest to this, they got to just work harder. Right. And they have to work harder to prove themselves as as founders. And it, it doesn't matter that I went to a top business school in Canada. It doesn't matter that, you know, I sit on the board of the largest library system. It doesn't matter that I started something from the ground. It doesn't matter that I've had experience. It's when you can't relate to somebody, hmm. it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to try to work with them. Right. So, you know, part of that battle for me is okay, how do I go out and find VCs who look like me? Right? How do I go out and find mentors in the space that can help guide me? How do I go out and find people who are allies to this cause? And how do I tap into the funds and the organizations that are actively looking for founders who just so happen to share the same characteristics that I share? Mm. And it's, it's interesting because when we had raised the money with Bolt, um, you know, the VP that we were working with, you know, part of her mandate actively is looking for founders who don't necessarily represent the normal archetype, right? Which again, is something that we lucked out on, right? Right. Because there was an inviting environment, a welcoming environment where you didn't feel like an outsider and you were able to pitch your idea and, you know, thank God we were, we were successful. Yeah. And, and, and which is also interesting because the company that you're running is, defined by not fitting you know the traditional norms uh, yeah, paradigms exactly. of what constitutes acceptable from a social 
uh, construct uh, for cosmetics for men, you know? So, so yeah. I think that's, that's, that's very interesting. Um, you know, who knows, there may have been uh, an understanding just from that, that even made that conversation a lot easier. Uh, but, but yeah, no, that those, those are good points. And, you know, I, th- I think the more uh, VCs that are black individuals or people of color, uh, the more we will start to see uh, founders uh, that are black or are people of color get funded um, at much higher rates than, than what they are right now. Um, totally. And I think, I think, um, you know, there's a small circle of them, Yeah, but especially right now they're making incredible waves and I'm, I'm looking forward to what the future of the entrepreneurship landscape looks like here in Canada and in the U S and broadly. Yeah. And, and, and on that, on that note, what, what's next for, for you with faculty and, and beyond? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so for faculty, it's just continuing to build a business. We launched um, roughly two weeks ago with a, with a big TikTok celebrity, um, and you know, so far so good on nice. on sales and engagement. And you know, we're getting all the followers we need, and we're we're attracting all the press that we could possibly ever want. So I'm incredibly enthused by that. So just continuing to scale the business and to to get this off the ground um, and beyond. Uh, a couple of initiatives, I think. Um, one is uh, a friend and I were we're building a network of of BIPOC members and mentors um, who graduated from Western from Ivy because we realized that the school doesn't necessarily collect this kind of demographic information. Right. So I would not know how many people who graduated who were let's say Black or South Asian or East Asian. So like we're just doing a side thing where it's hey if you're a mentor and you consider yourself BIPOC or you want to be a good ally sign up and we've had hundreds of people sign up so far. So really looking forward to, to helping to facilitate that. I think I, I always like, you know, I'm getting back to my roots as somebody who grew up in a household where education was important. I'm just continuing to be a guest lecturer at, at Western or at Ivy for, for various things and, and talking on panels, I think so that I can continue to inspire people with this half baked story that I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to write. Um, and I think outside of that, um, just trying to do the library thing. I think we're, we're in an interesting time right now where, you know, if, if we think back to, to Alexandria and the purpose of what the library was designed to do, and we think towards today on how that's completely changed, you know, once upon a time, the library was designed as a place of knowledge, a place of learning, a place where you could go and gather information. But information is everywhere. Yeah. Like you can be in, in an elevator. Okay, an elevator and have information being just completely spewed in your direction. So in the age of information being everywhere, how does a library, which is for some a pillar, an institution in society, how do you stay relevant? How do you adapt to technological changes? And how do you, you know, create value for patrons who use it and patrons who want to use it? So we're, we're in an interesting time where that the fabric of what some might consider an archaic institution is completely changing and being at the forefront of that is uh, pretty incredible. Brilliant. All right. So just before we wrap up, uh, we're just going to go through a very quick uh, rapid fire round. Um, basically yeah. I'm going to ask you a few questions uh, and you're just going to give me some of your best answers as, as quickly as possible. Okay. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh boy. So first up, uh, what book are you currently reading? I'm currently rereading Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. 
Brilliant. Uh, what would you say is your favorite uh, productivity hack or tool? Scheduling. I schedule my entire life, even even the dates that I have with my girlfriend. Nice. Good. Good. Those those are important. Those are really important. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, what would you say is a, your favorite place to escape to? My favorite place to escape to is oh boy, that's a. Uh, um, I don't have one yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe you should put that on on the what's next list. <laughs> Figure out sure. a place to stay sure. to. And and who would you say is your uh, biggest cheerleader or supporter? My biggest cheerleader or supporter is my girlfriend, awesome. Aiden. Awesome. She she has blind faith in all the the crazy stuff I do. Nice. And uh, last question: If money or resources were not an issue, what would you do? I'd still be doing what I do now. Nice. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Fenton, for joining us. Uh, this was a really inspiring conversation. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of folks that uh, will benefit from from your story, whether it's to you know take that leap of faith into the entrepreneurial journey or just continue to be their authentic selves in their corporate space. Uh, and for those of you that are interested in knowing more about uh, faculty, just visit their website, faculty.world. Um, and we'll have all of those details uh, in the show notes uh, for for all of you. Uh, so yeah, Fenton, thanks a lot for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Aziz. It was a blast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Made to Lead. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please share with others. Also take a moment to leave a review as well. This helps us improve and also get discovered by others. You can also support by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show and by visiting our website, madetolead.co. If you would like to be featured or know an amazing person of African descent whose story would be inspirational to others, I'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, madetolead.co slash get featured and send us a note. As you continue on your own leadership journey, remember that if you don't spread your wings, you'll never know how high or how far you can fly. So stretch your feathers because you were made to lead. Oh,